as we continue in our practice, we can begin to have a sense of the way in which what initially might seem like uh, something of a struggle to be present, to establish any degree of focus or steadiness, starts to slowly change. And although it's not to say that it somehow necessarily becomes easy to be present, there's nonetheless a a shift and a movement in which we find we're more able to connect and sustain that connection with the immediacy of where we are. And we feel ourselves more able to inhabit the, not just the breath and the body, but the very sense of this moment of being here. And as we settle more into being here, more deeply, more fully, we can start to notice some of the particularities of our experience and to pay attention to some of the areas of our experience which maybe initially it's a little more difficult to attend to. And one of the areas that it's really important for us to become aware of, to be mindful of as an aspect of our experience is what the Buddha spoke of as the third foundation of mindfulness. The condition of our mind itself, the citta, which we've spoken about, the quality of heart-mind, this remarkable, receptive and responsive field of sensitivity, of engagement, and of openness that is in contact with life. And this this field, this capacity which we start to sense and experience more directly is something which is subject at times to particular qualities or flavors pervading it in such a way that the way we experience life is affected by that. And it's really useful to become aware of how this happens. In English and in the West, we tend to think often in terms of emotions or sometimes mind states. And it's interesting that the, there isn't any word that the Buddha used that really equates to the word emotion. Although the, uh, the idea of the state of mind is perhaps quite close to what is referred to here as the third foundation of mindfulness. But just because I think for most of us we perceive or think in terms of the emotion quite often. Certainly that's how we describe our experience quite frequently. It's useful just to look at that experience a little to see what's happening. We can be at times quite strongly affected and impacted, touched in ways that we might find both very challenging or equally at times deeply enjoyable 
by the emotional life that we encounter. It's very easy for us, however, to be somewhat carried away by it, to identify with whatever feeling or state of mind is arising and somehow define ourselves by this. So here we're invited to look and see what's happening, to be as clear as we can. With the With the experience of emotion, what we can notice is that it has a number of different elements to it. The first element perhaps to acknowledge and to see clearly is that element that uh, we call the the condition, the state of mind, the citta, how, how it actually is. And so we might notice that there's joy or there's sadness. There's excitement or there's grief. There's a sense of upliftedness or a sense of flatness. And just that simple condition of mind can be perceived, can be recognized. But it's hard for us to do that because we tend to perceive our experience through it. And so experience becomes colored by it. And perhaps the most useful way I find to think about this, to understand it, it's as if somehow colored glasses have been placed in front of the eyes of the mind. And we see things through these colored lenses. And we're probably familiar with the expression of, you know, seeing through rose-colored spectacles. You have that expression? And that suddenly everything, you know, maybe one's having something really wonderful has happened and suddenly everything looks wonderful or we've fallen in love and everything looks rosy and beautiful. And, you know, the people at IMS are just so filled with light and the food tastes delicious and, you know, it's just such a wonderful environment. You know, and we maybe have had those moments and everything just looks, ah, oh, oh, just how... How precious and beautiful. We can be filled with appreciation. And it's not saying that there isn't something true in what we're seeing, but it's also the case that perhaps not so long after that particular way of experiencing things arises, something else comes along which we suddenly realize is actually going to be really problematic for us. And we start to feel irritated and a bit maybe angry and sort of wishing it wasn't this way. And then suddenly... You know, everyone at IMS looks kind of dark and grumpy and maybe a bit miserable and, you know, the the food's sort of not been done quite the way it should have been and, you know, you could really do with some different colour schemes in this place. And, you know, we notice we're seeing through a kind of an irritated, complaining sort of mind. Or other times it might be something more like depression and everything, a sort of a depressed mindset and everything looks flat. It's like, it's like it's sort of like surrounded by people who are completely you know, devoid of aliveness and, and the food is bland, it's got no flavor and, you know, the meditation doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, and we start telling ourselves stories based on these perceptions. Often that's how we can recognize that there's a particular mind state operating is that stories start to rise in the mind saying, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. So insistently, so compellingly that we unfortunately tend to believe them when, in fact, 
They're simply a reflection of a certain way the mind is being colored. And so, we're really encouraged to notice the way in which that coloring of the mind takes place. And it might be sometimes it's something kind of like, like literally a coloring, and we can see it's sort of a bright coloring or a dark coloring. Sometimes it might be more a sense of an opaqueness, and the mind sort of seems like it's hard to see through, and we can't really get a lot of clarity out there. Um, but like driving a car, if you didn't quite have time to really defrost the winds windshield, the windscreen really well before you drove off in the morning and there's a bit of sort of ice and frost scattered over it and you have to sort of peer through the cracks. Sometimes it's like that. And yet, if we can see, if we can recognize what's going on, we don't need to identify so much with what's happening. What tends to happen in the story is the sense of, in the thinking that comes out of it, is the sense that this is how it is. This is how it's always been. And this is how it always will be. We project a sense of continuity based on this interpretation that is filtered through a particular state of mind. So if we can notice the thinking in the story and just see, ah, that's the thinking. The story's based on this. But the actual experience is the mind is colored right now in a certain way. We might notice that it's sometimes contracted. And the Buddha's invitation is to know the contracted mind is contracted. Sometimes it's expansive. To know the expansive mind is expansive. Sometimes the mind is flavored with aversion or grasping. And just noticing how the mind becomes flavored and colored in that way be able to name that, to see that clearly. And with what we call emotions, as I said, there's the, there's the, the flavor of the mind, we could say. There's the storyline that goes with it, tending to drift into past and future, often carrying a belief in continuity and a, and a sense of identity, that I am this, this is who I am, rather than simply this is what's arising here. This is anger. This is sadness. This is fear. This is loneliness. This is confusion. These are all legitimate human experiences. This is delight. This is excitement. This is joy. This is bliss. This is kind of just ordinariness. This is maybe even just a sense of blandness. All of these things totally normal human experiences, but to see them as just this, rather than as who we are. If we don't identify with them, we don't have to do something about them. We don't have to get rid of them if we find them uncomfortable. Because what's really painful in the difficult emotion is not just the distress or pain of the emotion, but the way in which we take it to be who we are. And something in us knows that, in fact, we're not just this, and so we fight against it. We rebel against the experience of being defined by that emotion. And yet we do it, if we're not conscious, by reacting against the emotion itself or the perceived cause, external to ourself, 
of that emotional reaction. But what we're simply asked to do is see, ha, huh, this has arisen. And knowing that it has arisen, we can see and recognize that it will pass. And many times what's really helpful in this is to bring your attention into your body and feel where it is and how it is you're experiencing this. So what is the effect of the experience of frustration or irritation in the body? It can often feel tight and hot and hard. Well, what is the effect of sorrow or grief in the body? It can be sometimes sort of warm and moist and heavy or tender. But however it is for you may be different. Yet get to know it and say, oh, it's like this. This is what it's like. And it's often that we can find more ground and stability by letting ourselves be in contact with that aspect of the experience that is embodied. So we're knowing, okay, there's this mind state here, or this emotional process, and really the emotion is when the mind state hasn't been seen and perceived clearly, but identified with and then amplified through thinking about and reacting against, that it becomes so much more charged and difficult to handle. But at whichever point we become aware of what's happening, maybe just a subtle colouring of the mind, <coughs> or perhaps a, a full-blown, perhaps a full-blown emotional process arising. Wait for the click. What we can do is name it. Oh, it's this. It's this particular way in which the mind shows up. And yet this mind, so close it seems to us, this isn't actually ultimately defining us either. The state of mind is another experience, not so different in essence than a sound or a sensation. It arises according to conditions and it changes according to conditions. We're not trying to manipulate the mind state. Although, of course, there are ways in which we recognize wholesome qualities of mind which we cultivate. But the cultivation of those qualities doesn't guarantee or in any way make certain that the mind will arise imbued with those qualities in any given moment. Many other conditions, and certainly many conditions from the past, influence what is possible in any given moment. So again, we need to be forgiving and kindly with ourselves in regard to what we encounter, what we see in the mind. And yet to see that we are not this. Most fundamentally, most truly, if we're interested in in the liberation that's possible for each of us, we need to understand that we are not the state of our mind. It does not define us. And we can see it. It's remarkable. We can actually perceive and recognize in awareness the the arising of and the passing of states of mind. And if they ever arise with the thought, it's always like this. I always, you know, I'm feeling down. I've always been feeling down. It's, you know, it's going to go on forever. 
That's how we end up reacting to them. It's really useful to name what the feeling or the mind state might be, whether difficult or enjoyable or neutral, but also to notice the moments when it's not there. Because no matter what it be, whether physical or emotional, anything challenging, well, anything at all, there will be times when it is not present or just not predominant. And it's sometimes releasing or puncturing the hold it has upon us, the sense of identification with or struggle with, it's really supported by simply acknowledging the moments when it's not there. So we notice the absence of, not just the presence of, certain states of mind or patterns of reactivity that may be strong and challenging for us. And coming into the body. Letting the body be the place in which the mind can be grounded, which it can be earthed, so to speak. So the energy, the charge that gets caught with the mind state or feeds into the mind state actually is allowed to drain out. And then it's just a little color in the mind. And as if someone were to offer us a range of different colored spectacles, we could put them on and say, huh. The world looks green through these ones. How interesting. But we don't for a moment imagine that suddenly the world has turned green. Sometimes we have the dark ones on, we can't see too much, but we know the world hasn't suddenly been turned into that color. It's just, ah, there's a color in the way that I'm viewing things here. The Buddha once observed, he said, monks, you could say friends, he said, friends, this mind, this heart mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is clouded by conditions which visit from the outside. But people do not understand this, and for them there is no development of heart and mind. And he went on to say, friends, this mind is radiant, luminous, brightly shining. It is free from the conditions which visit it. This the wise understand. And for them, there is the development of this heart-mind. And so here we're engaged in this practice of wisdom, the development of the heart-mind, ultimately the liberation of this heart and mind. And so as we settle again into the meditation, being here through this day, through each moment, as we meet it. We can continue to use breath and body as the central ground and focus for attention, noticing the sounds that arise and pass, being aware of what comes to the mind, 
noticing the very color and flavor of the mind itself at any given time. We might just choose to notice, huh, what's that like right now? And if it's not clear, that's okay, just not sure, come back to the body. But if it's clear, really being aware of that, oh, it's like this. This is the flavor in the mind right now, knowing that this is temporary, not forever. And not needing to take it as saying anything ultimately about who we are, but simply a revelation of what's happening in this moment. And then staying open to see what shows up in the next.
So we're very much in the the depths and the heart of this retreat. Been practicing together for quite a few days now. And uh, it's not over yet. It's sometimes useful, however, to notice if we start to kind of settle into a bit of a kind of slightly too familiar sort of habitual rhythm of just doing what we do. And uh, notice if there's any ways in which it might be useful to just try something a little different. Essentially, to give yourself wholeheartedly to this practice, to hold nothing back, this is this is the really the most uh, compassionate and caring thing we can offer to ourselves right now. And in that, it doesn't mean it has to look in a particular way. We sometimes think that this way we've worked out or what we've heard is how it should be. So at one level, of course, we're here simply to be present, to be awake, to come back again and again, to open our eyes to see what's here. And it's just that simple. Nothing else to be done. The, the natural intelligence and wisdom of this human organism begins to see more clearly, to feel more deeply, to become sensitive to the, the vibration of what is most true simply by being supported, invited, and encouraged to be here in that way. And that's the whole thing, really. Sometimes we wonder why we talk so much. It's just that. And yet, what happens for us is we start to get into a certain way of doing it that we think is the way to do it, like actually having a cup of tea before the walking begins. That's the way it really works for me. Then I can really feel my feet. You know, and there's some tea in my belly. And, you know, it might be interesting to check out and see if that's really true. Or it might be that we find that we're, we're walking around looking at everybody just to see how they're doing. And sometimes that's inspiring or touching and there's no rule against it. But it might be useful sometimes to just really contain the focus, bring the attention really fully into the body, let the eyes be softly focused down, not downcast as if we're miserable, but kind of just letting go of the world, of all those things around us, to more fully inhabit the world within. More sensitivity, precision. And it might be that we're really well established and not looking up. In fact, we don't know anybody's face on this whole retreat. If we meet them in the store tomorrow or after the retreat, we're not going to know who they are. You know, 
it might be useful to look up and see who's here. (laughs) And just notice, what's it like to take in that level of experience? This sea of rather wonderful and remarkable humanity in which we are moving and with which and with whom we are practicing. If you always get to the lunch as soon as you possibly can, see what it's like to wait and go in towards, you know, five minutes after the bell rang. See what that's like for you. It's really useful to give attention to that period of time when food is being served and when we take and eat it. And in terms of habits of eating, we've got such well-established habits. I find it really helpful to just notice which hand I tend to eat with, and I'm left-handed. This is really well-trained in shoveling food into my mouth. It's really good at it. It always gets it in the right place. So sometimes I sit on it when I'm practicing, and I use this one, which is a bit clunky. It doesn't really quite know how to do it so well. And I've got to pay attention or else I might put it somewhere I don't want it. Hmm? And just sometimes just doing something simple like that. I'm not suggesting we're going to literally be inhaling the food if we do this. Um, but to, you know, just do it a little differently. Or even hold the fork differently. You know, sometimes we get trained how you have to hold a fork. People look at you the wrong, you know, like you're really bad if you didn't hold it the right way. Just, just try putting it in your hand a little differently. Any little thing that we do that's just not the habit can often show us things about what's going on or just simply slow us down. And in that slowing down, we can really begin to taste not just the experience which we're in contact with, but the very very quiet resonance and we could say vibration or even flavor of what it is that it is to just be this receptivity, this sensitivity, this vitality that is in contact with, touched by sounds, body sensations, movements of the heart, do we call emotion, states or flavors or colorings of the mind. And just starting to sense this. What is this that's going on here? Becoming curious, becoming interested in understanding that which we have not yet understood. There's a quality of curiosity, of interest that leads to a a natural kind of suspending of certainties and of beliefs and an interest to, to know more deeply what is true. And it is this that really allows us to see through the veils that bind us. It's this interest, not through analyzing or thinking about, not that kind of investigating curiosity, but more the, the wide-eyed gaze of the child who looks at a beetle that it's never seen before, thinking, what is that? Just that. Just what is this? What is this that's here? Now, always. Without trying to find an answer to the question, just let the question take you more deeply and fully in to the simplicity of this being here. 
this moment-by-moment encounter with life that is unfolding unstoppably and yet not forever. So it's time now for some walking practice and also this is the last round of groups for groups A, B, C, D, E, F this morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.